Good morning, everybody. Oh, that was so beautiful. <laughs> it's um, so good to see everybody, and it's a blessing to be in the house of the Lord. Any good this morning? Praise God. We're getting ready to begin worship, so if you're able, stand to your feet, and let's give God praise.
You may be seated. Well, good morning and welcome to Lloyd Community Church. As you entered, you may have received a card that has a Connect card and a Pray For Us card. I'd like to direct your attention to the Connect card first. If you have new contact information or if you're new to the church, please do fill that out so we can get in touch with you. And if you have anything in your life that you need prayer for, yourself or a family member, please do fill that out. We do have a prayer team, and we'd love to be praying for you for your needs. Thank you very much. And with that, I'd like to welcome up Pastor Steve Murray. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was a confession of faith and a prayer, wasn't it? Uh, you know, in, in formal liturgical terms, uh, there's a call to worship. That was a call to worship. Uh, that's a calling the people of God to humble themselves before God and to open their hearts and their minds to Him, uh, to uh, proclaim, prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, didn't you just feel that when you were singing those songs? That was a very powerful, powerful confession on your part, a very powerful prayer that God is answering uh, in our congregation and congregations around uh, San Diego, throughout the county, Southern California, of all places. Uh, we could call it Southern Corinth if we wanted to. You know, the, uh, the letter to the Californians and the Corinthians are pretty much the same letter uh, across the country. And so we see this happening and around the world uh, that that people, as they turn to God, are finding liberation uh, from the things that hold them down and hold them back. They're finding inspiration from the Holy Spirit breaking out among them and in them and through them. Uh, especially you're seeing it in more signs and wonders sorts of ways in places where the Word of God isn't as available. Uh, you see signs and wonders anywhere, everywhere. That, that is God doing something that you didn't expect and causes amazement and praise to pour out of your mouth and your heart and the mouths of people around you. But we don't live for signs and wonders. Signs and wonders are interesting. Uh, you can't live life at high pitch. Uh, you live life in terms of the Word of God cultivating and nurturing something in you that also brings amazement and praise to God. And so the neat thing is that wherever you bump into this, in a song like this that you're singing, claim it uh, as your confession of faith. Uh, claim it as a proclamation of, of saying to God, your will be done. Uh, on earth as it is in heaven. And when you run into more uh, ecstatic, uh, out there expressions of it, don't be put off or, or uh, perturbed or disturbed. If you see people doing all kinds of extraordinary things because they're being moved by the Spirit of God, um, just say, wow, Lord, it's interesting how you work, how you, how you break through. And this is the message of Jesus. This is the message of Jesus from the, from the get-go. Uh, how did Jesus start his ministry? He started it with signs and wonders. Um, uh, we see in the, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew, which we've been going through because we've been walking through the Beatitudes. We, we, we started in chapter 5 because we touched on chapters 1 and 2 at, at, during Advent, Christmas. Um, and we're, what we're going to do is move our way through, not necessarily linearly, um, because we'll be coming back to some things too, but we're going to move our way through between now and... Um, the, the beginning of summer, with uh, immersing ourselves in the book of Matthew. And why not? Uh, we got four options. Let's go with Matthew. He's first up. If we like it, we'll go to the next one. Uh, go on after that. I think you first, some of you heard me say when I was just finally opening myself to Jesus, and, and not even to Jesus, just saying, okay, I want to be prepared to, to argue and, to, and debate and to put down anybody who tries to lay the Bible on me. I started reading it just to be open-minded and equipped. And so uh, as I read it, though, I was so captivated by it, I was so taken by it, I was so uh, 
uh, enthralled by it because I thought I'd never heard this before. <laughs> it was completely unfamiliar to me. And having um, had experiences with church, I, I just thought, well, how come nobody's ever told me this? And, um, and it took me a while to figure out that I was reading the same thing four times. That's why it seemed to really stick with me. By the time I read through the Gospels, uh, I felt like, I'm really getting this. And I realized, well, I've just read it four times in, in different versions, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to be focusing in Matthew on the message of Jesus. Uh, Matthew teased it up for us. Um, you know, let me just give you a larger perspective. John, um, the last of the Gospels, uh, he was the longest living disciple of Jesus, apostle, sent out in the name of Jesus. Uh, at the end of his Gospel, in chapter 21, he says, you know, if Jesus said so many more things. In fact, all the libraries of the world couldn't contain everything he said. And, and that answered a big question for me when I first saw that. I thought, okay, because you get these kind of cryptic things he said. You know, it, it's the most compelling thing I'd ever read, and yet it wasn't like a novel where it, take, it starts, it explains everything to you, takes you somewhere. It was just throw stuff out there. And I realized what it was was people like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark being the shortest of those Gospels, uh, Luke probably being the longest, is that they were saying, there's so much here. How do, we, how do we take all this content and focus it for the particular audience we're trying to speak to? And John was speaking to a particular audience, uh, so was Mark, so was uh, Luke. But Matthew is speaking to Israel. And he wants Israel to know this is the culmination of everything you've hoped and prayed for. And so what does Matthew do? He opens up uh, his gospel right off the bat is a genealogy, which is a, a deal killer for anybody who's not Jewish. Because when I first picked up Matthew, started reading, I thought, why are we starting with all the footnotes? Why are we starting with all the esoteric data that's usually buried in the back of a text? You look up a name. It's just a list of names. I'm thinking, what is this? Well, the people who first got Matthew's gospel, they read that and that had their attention. They said, okay, something serious is happening here. He's telling me that Jesus is related to Abraham and David. Uh, and, and this is his humanity. This is his familial legacy and heritage. This is who he is as a human being. This is the human Jesus. And immediately then, he moves them from chapter 1, the, the phenomenal uh, genealogy, to chapter 2 where he's saying, oh, and he's divine? The Holy Spirit... Uh, impregnates Mary and uh, now Jesus is God in the flesh? Whoa, what is going on here? The, the, the humanity and the divinity of Jesus right in the first two chapters. Uh, and then in the third chapter, the family is taking a long extended vacation in Egypt. You know, And, and, and the people first reading it are saying, that's what Moses did. You know, Moses was all about uh, leading the people out of Egypt. And what's the connection here? Wait, so he's like Abraham, he's like David, he has something to do with them, and, and he's like Moses. And then all of a sudden, uh, you're in chapter 4, and Jesus is confronting Satan. And you're thinking, whoa, it's bigger than that. This is back to the Garden of Eden. It's, it's Adam and Eve confronted the serpent. Jesus is confronting Satan, the great serpent. What is going on in this book? And then uh, it continues throughout the rest of this book with all this teaching. Uh, we went through the Beatitudes. And, and as you read it, you realize, oh my gosh, it's like Moses giving us the five books of the law, the Torah. 
uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Deuteronomy, and something else. I can't remember all of them, but um, no. And so uh, Joshua, and you think, okay, there's a Moses-like thing going on here. So the structure of Matthew is this opening genealogy, this declaration of this is God <laughs> fulfilling what he's promised Israel. Uh, this is the, what happened in Egypt, fulfilling more prophecy. <clears throat> Here's what happens in chapter 4. He does what every human being uh, before the fall could have done. Confronted Satan and said, hey, so you say, but God has said this. And now we're off to the races. And there's, there's basically that chapters 4 to 7 are a section, like a book. Kind of like the book of Moses. Why? Because in those chapters, in addition to the Beatitudes, which is basically Jesus saying, here's my version of the Ten Commandments. Now in those books from four to seven, he's saying, here's my version of the entire body of the law. 633 commandments. Here's here's my take on that. And so that's when you're going through those chapters, you're saying, oh, he's talking about this and this and this. It's like a checklist of marriage, divorce, um, the law, you know, all these different things that were associated with the law of Moses. And then for the rest of the time, you see these other books. So we're at the end of a book today. We're in chapter 7, the very last part of what we would call chapter 7. None of this was written with chapters or or verses. But the way the people who did the chapters and verses organized it was roughly saying, what's the normal structural breaks and divisions in the thing? And so we are uh, in Matthew 7, verses 24 uh, to, I think, 29. Uh, yeah, and so it's culminating the first book, so to speak, the first book of Jesus according to Matthew that co- that coincides with um, what Moses was doing with his five books. So, are, are we on the same page now? <clears throat> we're going to go through these sections, and we're going to cherry pick between now and Easter something out of each of these sections, and then after Easter, we're going to come back and say, now let's look a little bit more closely at some of the detail in those sections. So it's 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 a way of covering the territory. Um, around the season that we're in. We already did Christmas, now we're going to Easter, uh, and so we're going to be jumping around a little bit. But today I'm giving you the culmination of the first book. And it, it, it's really uh, something so familiar to you, you'll feel almost a little bit of a letdown, like, oh, no duh, of course I know that. What's the, what's the big deal about that? Why is that a big high point for this first book that Matthew's trying to help us understand what Jesus is and what Jesus is doing? And it's there in 7, 24 to 29. If you have a Bible with you, if you have a phone that has a Bible app on it, if you can read a slide, you're, we've got you covered. We've got you covered all the way around. If you don't like to read, close your eyes and you'll hear it read. Is there anything we're, anything we're missing? I mean, um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. Uh, you'll see it in sections like there. But I, I'm going to break these down into a little bit smaller sections. Uh, so there you go. Uh, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, these people have been with Jesus. <clears throat> this is the Sermon on the Mount. This information is also given in a lower elevation called the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, you see Luke talking about that. Very similar. Why? Because Jesus, as John told us, said lots of things over three years, overlapping and speaking to specific situations. So now, having said all this stuff that is basically a brisk walk through the entire law of Moses, Jesus says, therefore, and in conclusion, everyone who hears these words of mine, it makes it very personal, not hears these words 
of mine that really are from Moses. And puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So notice that the categories of people aren't good people and bad people. Good people do it, bad people don't. All these people would probably fall into the category of good people. These were people that were true blue Jews saying, is this the Messiah? I don't know, but he's really a persuasive prophet of God anyway. And what he's saying is so compelling. And these miracles he's been doing, whoa, do you have my attention? Uh, and these are, are uh, a combination of very sophisticated people and very tough people. This is in the north of Israel, Galilee, around the lake, and uh, there's a lot going on there. Uh, some really interesting things happening intellectually, but really uh, it's, a, it's a working man's world. They're fishermen. It's, it's, an, it's a life different than the, the life in Jerusalem. So these are people who are probably, we would say, the equivalent of from Missouri. Show me. Convince me. And so Jesus is saying, uh, I'm speaking to those who want to be wise. Good, bad, or indifferent, I'm speaking to the people who want to be wise. And I'm speaking to people who just don't want to hear something, but want to do something. So it's very much a Hebraic concept of the whole person. You know, the, the Greek thing is separating out minds and bodies. Uh, it's okay to, to live like hell as long as your mind is focused on spiritual things. That was a platonic thought. And if you're a really, really advanced person, according to Plato, and this is what permeates Greek uh, philosophy and, and Western philosophy to this day, is that you know, if you live out of your head, it's awesome. And you have an elitist kind of an idea. I'm not one of those people way down there. And they had these interesting ways of dividing it. The, the pneumatikoi, the spiritual people. Then there's the sukakoi, suke, soul, psychology. The soulish people. They're the people who are okay, they're there, they're, but they're not quite the spiritual elite that we platonic people are. And then there's the sarkakoi, the people of the flesh. They're like the drones. Um, and if you've ever read A Brave New World, this is what he did. He said, let's take the platonic view and, and we'll apply it. Uh, in, in modern era. So Jesus is saying, everybody has access to this. Everybody. Hearing and doing Jesus' words is wise, according to Jesus. It's not good or bad, but it's wise or unwise. Now, of course, when you become wise, you become better. You become more good. If you're unwise, you do what's bad. But he's starting with this concept of, do you want to be wise or foolish? And so hearing and dismissing Jesus' words is unwise. And the worldly wise say, don't get carried away. Now we're going to see in a minute that that's like a prophetic thing to say if you're a worldly wise person. Don't get carried away. Don't get carried away with Jesus. Uh, the church, I mean, I can't, I'm not judging the church, I'm just observing the church. It's filled with a bunch of people who say, I, I hear it, I believe it, but I, I'm really too sophisticated to do it. I got, I got my eye on the market, I'm, I'm playing that game, I've got my eye on this, I'm, you know, I'm working all the angles, and the Jesus thing is a little bit too much commitment into stuff into the territory that I really can't control very well. And it's not to say that we're to be naive. Wise people don't become instantly naive and oblivious to the way the world works. Wise people are the people who say, I get how the world works, I play by the rules, 
uh, I'll, I'll do the conventional or the unconventional thing according to what I need to do. But I understand something here. I must be carried away by Jesus. If I'm not carried away by Him and His Word, I will be carried away by lesser things. You will be carried away. Uh, the, the question is with what? With whom? By whom? And where will it take you? Uh, it was five years ago that people in Montecito, California woke up and they heard this roaring in the middle of the night. And um, a family that we know, the family, most of the family was not there. Uh, one of the fathers of the six boys and one of the boys was at the house. And they walked out and they were immediately engulfed. Their house was the first house in that, in that pathway of the mud that overwhelmed that house and the entire neighborhood of Montecito. The young boy was found later on Highway 101 and uh, survived. The father didn't. Um, they're phenomenal people. They're phenomenal people. Um, thankfully, uh, their family had been carried away for a long time with Jesus. And the mud carrying them away was a horrible, bitter experience to go through. But because of who they are in Christ, they have resilience uh, and they uh, are in a good place today. They still grieve and they still acknowledge loss, but the more core thing that they possessed was not taken away from them. They were carried away. Are you carried away with Jesus? I don't mean emotional, unstable, crazy. I know people I love very much uh, who say and do some crazy things in Jesus' name. And I want to sit down with them and I try to and I have and say, hey, you know, I get your zeal. Can we add some wisdom to that zeal? Zeal without wisdom is an unmitigated disaster. Wisdom uh, adds to zeal uh, what zeal needs to speak the truth in a way that actually moves hearts and minds. Zeal uh, to somehow say something that sounds spiritual, says, I know she just died, your daughter and all that, you know, I know she's five, but she's in a better place. See, that's zeal with no wisdom. Wisdom says, I can only imagine the grief you're going through right now. I don't know what to say. Can I just sit here with you? Yeah, that would be great. So it's powerful to think about being carried away by Jesus. Carried away in the sense that we're, we're so founded in Him that the, that the lesser things cannot carry us away. So this is, where does this come from? Uh, this comes from God's Word. It's Psalm 18. Psalm 18 verse 2, Psalm 18 46. If you have a Bible, if you have your Bible app, we don't have a slide for this, but I'll read it to you. Uh, this is David speaking in Psalm 18. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. Those are battle analogies. The shield protecting you, the horn, an expression of power. My stronghold, my fort, right? The Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be God my Savior. So this is why Jesus uses the definite article, the rock. He's not saying, hey, build your house on rock. Remember, look at this. He says it twice. Build your house on the rock. It's personal. These words of mine corresponds to the rock. So that's what's going on here. 
That's the structure, the grammatical, the, the linguistic structure of this passage. And of course the import of it is what David proclaimed in Psalm 18. This is the only safe place in an unsafe world. The irony being that God will take you into unsafe places even though you're founded on him, the rock. I'll come back to that in a moment. Actually, let's go there right now. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Such a simple analogy. That's why I said you might be a little let down. You think after all that passage, you know, all those passages from chapter 4 all the way through the end of 7, that's the best we got. It's a parable about something I know. You think you know it. I think I know it. But we're going to find out as we talk about this and think about it that we don't really know it, know it. Uh, just this notion of building your house on the sand. Um, uh, before I met her, Janet lived on Balboa Island. Balboa Island, charming, cute. Maybe you've walked around it. You've said, I'd love to live here someday. Um, I love this 700 square foot place. It's only $5 million. It'd be awesome. That's why there's 10 girls living in it, you know, all chipping in, starting their careers in Balboa Island. You know, you walk in the house like this, and you walk upstairs like that. And anyway, uh, in the 14 years we lived there, you know, taking walks around Balboa Island, we lived, a, you know, a few blocks away from there. Um, it was always fun to see the houses being rebuilt because Balboa Island was a spit of sand that, that they cut a trench so that it became an island. It's like an instant island, and now they have this sand spit, and people built houses on it. And they were meant to be just kind of prop up, go there for the summer, go home. It's like a hard-sided tent, basically. So when we lived there, uh, it was massive development going on on Newport Beach. And so we'd, every time we'd walk around Balboa Island, there's another house hoisted up, being remodeled from a 700-square-foot thing to a 25 or 4,500-square-foot thing. And they were putting in foundations. So it was always fun to see what it looked like underneath these houses. There's, it was just on sand. Now, why did somebody uh, feel like they needed to change that quaint and charming place? Well, because some seismic engineer like John Wilson showed up and said, you know, that's not a good idea. In fact, I've got the mandate of the state behind me to tell you that you cannot build that house you want to build unless you put a foundation under that little thing. And so it goes. All right, that's Babel Island, a vacation place. All right, yeah, you know, it's a little island. How about San Francisco, California? 56% of the city of San Francisco, California, is built on sand and landfill. Uh, one of my favorite courses in college was geology. I thought for about 10 minutes I wanted to be a geologist because it was so fascinating. And my professor was an expert on earthquakes in California, and he would show you these gnarly films he'd taken and slides. And if you, have you ever seen liquefaction in action? Liquefaction is the seismic result of an earthquake, and Pure land, I mean land, like what we're sitting on, all of a sudden looks like a wave. And the film of it is a sine wave. It just looks like a normal wave. And you think, how can, you know, how can a, a big hunk of land look like water? It's liquefaction because the forces are so strong, it shakes it. And all that loose dirt and landfill and sand just kind of becomes a wave. 56% of San Francisco is built on that. Do you know how much it costs to live in San Francisco? Mind-boggling how expensive it is. And you know what people say when, when somebody says, hey, you know, you're on sand and landfill here. And they go, I've got insurance. <laughs> well, good for you. Good for you. And in a not-so-funny note, everybody in Turkey had insurance. And Syria had insurance. 
Everybody in Northridge, California, in the 70s had insurance. Uh, the mandate of our state is that every building in L.A. needs to be retrofitted up to seismic standards. Why? The carnage is mind-boggling. If what happened in Turkey happened here, uh, it, it would be over. I mean, game over, because the devastation would be so immense, the logistics snarl would be so intense. The economic loss and setback, the loss of life. You think COVID was scary. COVID would be um, like an afterthought because it would be so, is this true? It'd be so devastating. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying, oh, you might have to repaint your house. Uh, we had, over these rains, we had, we had a, a leak. And uh, it was a bummer because now, you know, we had this water feature in our house. Charming. If you've never had a beautiful little trickle of water coming from the ceiling, just kind of puddling out, it's, it's really charming for about 30 seconds. You're like, oh my gosh, it's our house. We're indoors. And so we called a roofer, and he came over and said, yeah, we, it's this problem on the roof of the deck. We can, you know, it's only $6,000. We're like, no way. We just had our roof done, uh, re, re, redone, and, and the guy said, it's awesome. And, and so J Janet, you know, is is taking charge of this, you know, checking it. Well, I got some ideas on this. She says, the guy, that's not the problem. The guy's looking at her going, lady, I don't know. Uh, you know, what, what should we do? So Janet's solution was to get the guy who came over to paint and patch to put some sealant on it, and it's done. So for five bucks of sealant, uh, it rained hard the last few weeks, dry as a bone, and the inside, Enrique came over, and patched this thing, opened up the ceiling, patched it. In one day, it's perfect, amazing. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That's a superficial cosmetic fix. All is well from the trickle. We're talking about the storms. When the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Now notice it says, not if the storms come, but when the storms come. And he is our rock, not protecting us from the storms, he's sustaining us in the storms. Uh, do you know the name Kate Bowler? Uh, I just became aware of Kate Bowler uh, this last week. A friend of mine, I'm not, not personally, but introduced me to Kate Bowler. So, oh my gosh, I'm interviewing this woman, check it out. Kate Bowler, the most vivacious, bubbly, fun person you want to meet, has 10 million TED Talk views. And it's on another version of TED, TED Med. Uh, she's a professor at, you know, at Duke University uh, Divinity School. She's written some great works <clears throat> and uh, married to her high school sweetheart, a beautiful little boy. Um, she did her PhD dissertation on the prosperity gospel. She was so intrigued by this, she thought, what is the prosperity gospel all about? And why is it so associated often with megachurches, which are not bad. Megachurches are not bad. But, but, but the prosperity gospel movement is, is a lot of zeal with not a lot of wisdom. And it makes promises from a human perspective that God doesn't back. And it confuses the prosperity of God's presence with prosperity uh, that looks like the American dream. And so uh, prosperity is not bad, but prosperity is not our goal in the sense of material prosperity. So she went everywhere around the country, talked to every every. You know, pastor with great hair that was a televangelist, or on, and and uh, and it's okay not to have great hair and be a televangelist. I'm not saying, you, but she basically interviewed everybody and wrote this brilliant, powerful uh, PhD dissertation that became a book. 
<clears throat> about the assumptions of the prosperity gospel. Bad stuff doesn't happen to God's people. And not only will I have a house on the rock, it's going to be a mansion and self-illuminating. It's going to be phenomenal. And, and I name it and I claim it, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so she wrote this book, and she's written other great things. And she's this, again, vivacious professor. And one day she gets a call in the middle of a meeting, and it's, and it's a, an assistant from the physician's office where she had a checkup, and the physician's assistant, not a physician assistant uh, as in like a doctor, but a, the, the office person said, uh, got your report back. You have stage four cancer. And she was devastated. And all she could think to say was, but I have a baby boy. That's all she could think of saying. But, but I have a baby boy. And, and then throughout the conversation, did I say, I have a baby boy? Did I, I mention that, didn't I? And later she said, as I was unpacking this devastating news, I realized I had my own version of the prosperity gospel. I had assumed that because you know I love Jesus and I walk with Jesus and I'm serving Jesus and I'm even serving by training up godly theologians and pastors um, and that infertility process took a long time and I'm blessing a lot of people that somehow the deal would be in my favor you see where this goes it's not if it's when, and it's not from, it's in the midst of. That God is our rock. Uh, and if you watch just Kate Bowler, like a bowler, uh, and just go TED Talk Kate Bowler, you'd be 10 million and one, watch it. Uh, it is so powerful because in this 14-minute talk, she lays out this, I mean, brilliant theological perspective, but telling her story, and, and with tears. You know, she's not afraid to feel what she's going through. She's been uh, alive now, I think, for f- five or seven years, living with stage four cancer. As, as she jokes, I'm on my fifth belly button, and it's the least one. It's the one I like the least. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. God is using this horrible situation in her life to bless a lot of people. That's not the reason for it. The reason for it is that we live in a fallen world and our bodies fail us. But God is using it nonetheless to teach people how to move from being foolish to wise. So Jesus goes on to say, but if everyone who hears these words of mine does not put them into practice, they're like a foolish person who builds their house on sand. Now, of course, here the sand is anything that we replace with, you know, from Jesus. Now, now, Pursuing your goals and your dreams and your aspirations, working hard towards some goal, you know, getting an education, doing something that you really love in your career, that's not sand. Sand is what you're putting your hope and trust in. Sand is what shapes your identity, and this is my fallback to know that I'm okay. I've got worth and value. Sand is anything and everything other than uh, what Jesus is saying is the core for that, his word. His abiding presence through His Holy Spirit, right? When, you see, when we see the word, word of God, uh, you remember John's Gospel, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Word is not just the written Word in the Bible, that's certainly God's Word. Uh, but Jesus is the personified Word of God. So that's why you can say every word of mine. He's talking about Himself. All things were done in and through Christ. And so the Word then becomes much bigger than words on a page. It's the actual... Uh, presence of God communicating who He is 
uh, to the people he loves dearly and wants to save. So in life generally, it's choosing to lie, cheat, or steal, or enhance, deflect, and misinform. That's what the alternative and substitute for Christ looks like. You've got to sell, sell, sell. You've got to convince, convince, convince. First yourself and then other people that this sand is really worth putting your life on. What, what sign are you, by the way? I was just wondering, what sign are you? Right? Oh, there I go again. I'm just a Libra, you know. There you go. Whoa, 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 whoa. Interesting, clever, cute sand. Sand. Yeah, no, I don't go for this stuff. But this crystal, I don't know. I just feel good when I have the crystal and you go, it's, it's crystalline, but it's still silicate, it's sand. Well, I have this ideology. I paid these people and they, they, they took me through this process and sand. Well, okay, I get it. It's a Jesus thing. I said, I go to this church and they said, if I just name it and claim it, if I can imagine it, I can possess it. I'm like, sand. Wherever it comes from, out of the mouth of a pastor, from a church, from whomever is a big deal authority, and everybody's paying to see him. And, <clears throat> um, oh my gosh, you know, um, when you think of the, the people who are getting paid a lot of money to tell us a lot of baloney, it's mind-boggling. And um, um, we have to be wise. Otherwise we say, bring it on, sounds good to me. So sand is any and every alternative we substitute for Christ. Ultimately, in just terms of normal day-to-day life, it's everything we replace righteousness with. Sand is that ephemeral sense that I can cut corners and I can play the game and I can work the system to my advantage. My sister is a professor at a large um, public university and um, I think she has like 200 students and um, a bunch of classes and stuff undergraduate graduate and so recently she's telling me it was funny but not funny she said you can't believe what happened she sends me this screenshot and it's an essay uh, and she gave her class a simple assignment and uh, about public health and just to get them thinking about the implications of public health and to think about research and all that and so it was it was a question about um, a very important significant part of public health and so the way it was framed was um, <clears throat> four questions uh, it was about their feelings about it and, and their sense of what could make the public policy better. So trying to get them to enter into not just the technical stuff they're learning, but the, the professional context in which they'll be applying it. But a student decided to use chat GPT or better, maybe simply saying an AI language uh, to complete the assignment and uh, they turned it in as their own work. The problem, apparently, I'm seeing in the screenshot, it's kind of funny. The problem was they didn't bother to proofread what the AI bot gave them. They were so lazy in this instance that not only did they use that as a way of getting the assignment done, they didn't even review it. They just pulled it out of the printer and turned it in. And so what was funny is that um, the first question my sister asked, just to get them warmed up to the topic, was, what is your personal feeling about this public policy? And of course, the chatbot answered, as an AI language model, I do not have personal feelings. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I, I was reading this, I, I was 
laugh. I was glad I wasn't drinking milk. It would have come out of every orifice, you know. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm thinking, this is unbelievable. And it had another question. Then it had a second question of the four questions that was, that was subjective. And this one was, how would you improve it? How would you improve this public policy, depending on how you feel about it? The chatbot response was, as an AI language model, I do not have an opinion, an opinion on public policy issues. <laughs> so my sister <laughs> contacts a student and says, um, hey, tell me about your assignment. He goes, oh, yeah, it was a great assignment. You know, loved it. And, uh uh-huh, yeah, great. Um, could you explain this? And she has it highlighted yellow. He goes, oh, those are typos. <laughs> so she had a very focused conversation with him about cheating and about how this could, first of all, you will not get any, any credit for this assignment. If it happens again, you're going to be reported to academic integrity. And thirdly, you're going to lose uh, every good thing you've done is going to be called into question, and you're going to lose your dream to be a neurosurgeon. I'm thinking, good luck with that. You want to be a neurosurgeon? Can you imagine? I'm, I'm sedated on the table, and he's going, ah, fantastic. Oh, wait, it doesn't have an opinion on this kind of brain surgery. Now what do I do? You know? Okay, fun to laugh at that. Um, but we all have our version of chat GPT. Uh, it's a version of sand. I have substitute authorities that take the place of the only authority worth listening to. See, one of the beautiful things about chat GPT is I thought about it, and my sister said, you know, this is going to be a great tool because, first of all, for me, as, a, as an instructor, a professor, I can, I'm going to ask every question like this from now on with a feeling or an opinion. Even if I want hard data, I'm going to frame it as an opinion or a feeling because chatbox can't deal with it. Chatbots go, uh, I don't have feelings or opinions. But also, this G- chat um, GPT is going to be a brilliant way of having a mobile Encyclopedia Britannica. Hey, tell me about liquefaction. You get an essay on it, read it. And at some point, you're going to have to own it and then master those, that content and be able to deal with it creatively. So there's a great resource here, but right now it's in the early stages and people are gaming it. But we have our same uh, responses, right? We listen to everyone but Jesus, and then we're tempted to even edit him. Sure, certainly Jesus couldn't have meant this. Certainly Jesus couldn't have meant that. But the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. A great crash. Uh, the Greek word for, cre- for great isn't, is the word you know, mega. When you think of mega, what do you think of? The biggest, the best, the most awesome. Mega, nothing bigger, better. And in this case, mega lay, it's great crash as in disaster, total devastation, uh, complete destruction. Uh, It's ugly, it's bad, it's bleak. And so here's the crazy thing. On this passage, Jesus ends on a bleak note. Why? That's so un-Jesus, it's so un-us. I like to resolve everything in a positive way. I like to tell you devastating things if it's true, but then help you resolve it so it's okay. And I will before you leave. But in this case, Jesus lets it hang there. That's it. And it fell with a crash. And everybody's like, and it fell with a crash. Yes, crash, a great crash. This is where it ends. Now, this is a picture of the last judgment, right? 
There's a picture, this is a picture of the last judgment. Because every one of us can think of exceptions. So yeah, but so-and-so did this, and they, they lived a long life, and you know, in summer, you know, summer's last word, Summer Redman or whatever his name is, you know, the owner of everything in uh, Sumner, and uh, uh, all the messy stuff around him. He lived this great old age and died with a smile on his face. You go, okay, that's the exception. We're talking about beyond this life. But then working back from the final judgment, there's a lot of these situations that everybody's going to face. And the good news is that Jesus is telling us this parable in real time so that the people who first heard it, what could they do? Repent. He didn't resolve it for them. He just let it sit with them and move them to say, well, I don't want that. I want to be the wise person. Ah, well, let's keep going then. So we're hearing it. We're reading it. If you read, read, think, pray, you read this and said, whoa. But you can do something about it. Just like it's not good to be a hearer of the word but a responder to it. It's not out of your reach to say, having heard it, I will respond to it. How do I respond to it? See, at the final judgment, God will say, your will be done. But every day we get to wake up and say, Lord, your will be done. What is your will? How can I walk with you? How can I learn from you? So it's not about just trusting in Jesus. And I say just not to minimize trusting in Jesus. That's essential. But if you were taught that it's enough just to trust in Jesus in this passive, disconnected way, Somebody didn't give you the whole gospel. It's trusting in Jesus so that you start training in Jesus. It's trusting in Jesus so that you start applying this stuff in Jesus. And you become wise in whatever field of endeavor you're in. It doesn't matter how esoteric the science, the business, the social issue is that you're involved in at a high level, let's say. All the complexities of your world, they don't make this irrelevant. They make this essential the more complex your world, the more essential this is to it. How do I deal with this situation in this child, in this marriage, in this relationship, in this community, in this church, in my professional working environment? So, okay, somebody could say, Jesus is using fear to scare us into compliance and submission, huh? No, not fear, love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that nobody would perish. But everybody could have life with him now and forever. That's love that's driving that, not fear. If you're afraid, that's a good response. Because it's alerting you to the fact that I have missed something really big. I made some really bad assumptions. Some unfortunate decisions. Tell me about these responses. Uh, They were typos. Uh, They were not typos. But you can repent. You can change. You can have a better rest of this semester you can have a better rest of your undergraduate work environment, and you maybe can reach that goal. But you got to change. And, and to, to my sister's credit, she said, I, <clears throat> I told this student I would be praying for him. And she said, it got me thinking about it. I, I now pray for every one of my 200 students in this large public university. And I don't have to ask anybody for permission to pray for them. There's no law that prohibits me from praying for them. Because I want to move them from being unwise to wise, from building a life on sand to building on the rock. So Jesus is warning us out of love. That's his message. That's why he came into the world. And false prophets tell you what you want to hear or what they want you to hear. And it's usually couched in terms of greatness. It will be great. You will be great. I am great. Believe me. Trust me. Follow me. 
and our false self resonates with this. I will do great things, then I will be happy and satisfied. I will do great things, then I'll be okay, you'll like me. I'll be popular or I'll be, okay, you know, I'll be validated as an awesome person. But Jesus calls us to righteousness, not greatness. And they're not opposite things. But greatness is a lesser thing to righteousness. It's not, oh, do I want to be righteous or great? That's a, that's a false binary. But saying I want to be great means you could possibly, probably sacrifice righteousness. Oh, it's just a stupid essay question, four questions, I'm really busy, I'll just get the bot to fill in for me. Jesus calls us to righteousness because dreaming big starts by obeying him. You want to dream big about anything? Start with him. Dreaming big starts with small acts. Your will be done. Teach me your ways. Create a clean heart in me, O Lord. If all that, greatness starts small. Righteousness is the pathway to greatness. And you might be talking to somebody who has the most humble job on the planet, and you're saying, how could you possibly do that? You go, I'm just part of my calling in Christ. It's great, isn't it? You go, that's great. No, I wouldn't call that great. I wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, but that's because God's not calling you to do this. In his righteousness, what is he calling you to do? What kind of version of that will you be? True greatness always asks righteousness questions. Will this honor God and bless people? How so? Who decides? Because I can game it. I'm blessing God and honoring people. Well, how do you know, Steve? What does that look like? What feedback are you getting? Are you asking those people what kind of service they need from you? Are you getting feedback that's telling you this is making a person want more to be like Christ? Or they want to be more like you? What and who am I serving? Who is holding me accountable? So our version of greatness is often us-centered and often comes at the expense of righteousness. Jesus' version of greatness is found in his righteousness, in his kingdom, not in this world's version. And that's why when you meet a truly great person who knows Christ, they, are, they wear it so lightly. It's not false humility, oh, it's not a big deal. They would go, I know it's a very big deal, and thank God he gives me what I need to do it. They're confident but not proud and arrogant. Uh, they can make decisions even though they, they pray for wisdom and discernment. You know what I'm saying? Powerful when you see great people supported in that greatness through God's righteousness. What Jesus did on the cross was truly great. Has there been a greatest act of love in human history? It was done out of righteousness. And even in the midst of it, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Prior to this chapter, Jesus said this, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be given to you as well. We prayed and declared this as a confession of faith in our, in our heart's prayer as we sang today. This is where it leads us. Those songs lead us here. And this leads us back to those songs. And so when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority and not as our teachers of the law. So let's remember this. Every time we come to God's word, as we come to this table for Holy Communion, uh, for those who are going to serve Holy Communion, come up. Um, <clears throat> we're serving Holy Communion with these little kits, and we'll eventually transition back into being able to touch things. 
We did that on Ash Wednesday as well, but right now we're still doing these. But on that night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and having blessed it, he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup later in the meal and he said, this cup, as he blessed it, is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you do this in remembrance of me. The rock of our salvation invites us to come into a life-changing relationship with him. If you've never done that, open your heart and mind to him. Accept him as your Lord and Savior today. If you've been passive and neglecting and distracted and not really paying attention to him, this is your chance to come back to him today. To repent and turn your, turn your attention toward him and say, Lord, I've been so uh, not present to you. Here I am, I'm back. And maybe you've been gone a long time and you feel like I don't deserve to be back. Get rid of that thought. That's not God's thought. God's thought is, come to me and I'll give you rest. Come to me, I'll give you God's shalom. So do this. And let's do that together. As we come up, you hear words like this. This is Christ's body given for you. This is Christ's blood shed for you. Come receive it. We're going to have a little extended time of worship together this morning. So Lord Jesus, we, we commit these elements to you for your glory and our blessing. We recognize your presence in them in some mysterious way. You're present in these elements. Not contained by them, but present in them. Just as you are present in us by faith. Not contained by us, but powerfully at work within us. So I, I commit myself and my brothers and sisters to you in Jesus' high and holy name as we receive Holy Communion in your name. Amen.
Spirit of the living God, Spirit of the living God, we only want to hear your voice. We're hanging on every word. Spirit of the living God, Spirit of the living God, we want to know you more and more. We're hanging on every word. Because when you speak, and when you move, and when you do what only you can do, it changes us, it changes what we seek, and what we seek. And when you come in the room, and when you do what only you can do, it changes us, it changes what we see, and what we see. Spirit of the living God, Spirit of the living God, leaning into all you are, and everything else can wait. And Spirit of the living God, Spirit of the living God, come now and breathe upon our hearts, come now and have your way. Because when you speak, you move, when you do what only you can do, it changes us, it changes what we see, what we see, when you come in the room, and when you do what only you can do, it changes us, it changes what we see, what we see. when you move, you move all our fears. And when you move, you move us to tears. And when you move, you move all our fears. And when you move, you move us to tears. And when you fall,
breaks the power of sin and darkness whose love is mighty and so much stronger the king of glory the king above all kings who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder who leaves us breathless in awe in wonder the king of glory the king above all kings this is amazing grace this is unfailing love that you would take my place that you would bear my cross you lay down your life that i would be set free oh jesus i sing for all that you've done for me chaos back into order who makes the orphan a son and daughter the king of glory the king of glory who rules the nations with truth and justice shines like the sun in all of its brilliance the king of glory the king above all kings yeah this is amazing grace this is unfailing love that you would take my place that you would bear my cross you lay down your life that i would be set free oh jesus i sing for all that you've done for me the king who conquered the grave worthy is the lamb who was slain worthy is the king who conquered the grave worthy is the lamb who was slain worthy is the king who conquered the grave worthy is the lamb who was slain worthy 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 this is amazing grace this is unfailing love That you would take my place That you would bear my cross You lay down your life That I would be set free Oh, Jesus, I sing for All that you've done for me Thank you. So what has Jesus done for you? He's given you salvation for sure. He's also teaching you and me how to live, how to feel real feelings, how to think deep thoughts, how to express ourselves in ways that might push us beyond our comfort zone, how to slow us down so that we can be quiet and contemplative, energizing us so we can get out and make a, a noise in the world. This is what Jesus is doing in us. He's doing it in you no matter what age or stage of life you're in. You're not past it. It's not way out in front of you. It's right now. 
So now may the Lord bless you right now in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go out and get a prayer in the prayer garden. Go out and get something to eat and have a great rest of the day. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain.